My, uh, my greetings to you this morning as well. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 14. 7 to 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the, well, the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I, am no, longer, I no longer am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. But I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to meet this morning. And, and we ask that you would uh, find pliable hearts in all of us. and That uh, we would reaffirm truth that we may know or learn truth that we need to know. Uh, but at any case, may we see the glimpse and the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And may we be transformed a little more into His likeness. May we have greater resolve to do battle against this constant conflict that's within all of your people. And so, Father, we just commit ourselves to you and ask for your rich blessings upon your word to our souls. Uh, for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We we're back in Romans 7. We were in Romans 7, uh, launched it last week, and we're going to be in Romans 7, Lord willing, uh, today, and then one more time next week, and, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. Uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the substance of all Christian living. Uh, if you really want to get a handle on the Christian life, uh, all that we need to know uh, is found in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. That is not to say we are excluding the other parts of the Bible, uh, but Romans 6 and 7 and 8 are indeed the substance. It's substance of our Christianity positionally, and it's substantial, substantial in Christianity practically. <clears throat> there's a wealth of instruction on how to live out your position in Christ, and there's also the stark realities of the Christian life. Romans 6, we have the amazing positional truth that we are in Christ and that we have died with Him, we have been risen with Him, and thus the domineering power of sin is no longer identifying us. We have been set free. The chains have been broken uh, because of Romans 6. Then we have Romans 8. Romans 8 is that amazing positional truth of the person in Christ is free from condemnation. Free from the shackles and the, of the wages of, of, of our sin being death. But it also affirms our adoption in, in God's family and provides for us how we are to fight this conflict by the spirit-filled life. 
And another thing that we find true in Romans 6, 7, and 8, in a real sense, it's living in the now, not yet. Uh, we're living in the now, not yet. In Romans 6 is certainly the now of our position in Christ. Uh, Romans 7 is the reality of the now, which is the conflict. And Romans 8 takes us to the groaning of future redemption, future glorification. So in a very real sense, we can look at the whole of the Christian life from eternity past to eternity uh, future, all in Romans 6, 7, and 8. That we are in Christ, we are forever free from the condemnation of sin, yet we still have to fight this side of heaven. But uh, chapter 8 points us to the end. Points to when the race is finished, the good fight is over, and that we are no longer uh, in Romans chapter 7. But that day is not today. Is that we are indeed in a world that entices, which we will see in Romans 7, the law of sin. We have a devil that exploits the law of sin. And we have our flesh that loves the law of sin. And so we have in a very real sense a conflict that is difficult to describe, but is very real to the believer by experience. Sinclair Ferguson has said this, quote, the Christian life is not all smiles, but neither is it all tears. It is not all peace, but neither is it only unbated defeat. There is all joy and peace in believing, but yet at the same time the Christian life is a continual and irreconcilable war, end quote. And as much as we look at Romans 7, we can see Paul struggling, and we see even you know, the, that, that, that tension that seems to overwhelm him in the battle, Romans 7 can actually be a real source of encouraging assurance to us. Because the very presence of this warfare is a strong, is a strong indicator that we are a Romans 6 and a Romans 8 Christian. That we are in Christ and that we do look with anticipation of the future union with Christ, literally. And Romans 7 is the now that affirms that that is true of us because we have this painful reality of remaining sin within us or the law of sin. So today we're going to look at that very thing. And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to focus on verses 24 and 25. Um, and to borrow what Gene prayed, uh, we're going to look at the vertical, uh, as Paul would tell us about the horizontal. Because in verses 24 and 25 is the gospel that rises you above Romans 7 and sets us on a course to Romans 8. And so, but that's for another time. So let's just, let's take a look and walk through some of these things. And you can follow me, follow along on the outline. The first thing I want to establish, and this is so important, is that we have to look at this personal nature of the war and the personal nature of the enemy. The Christian life is indeed personal. Now you know that. You know it's individual. You know it's personal. Um, but it's not private is that we certainly do live uh, the Christian life. We slug it out together uh, in a corporate setting. But as for the individual, it is the individual Christian life first. And it's important that we examine ourselves. Paul would say, examine yourself to see if we are in the faith. And so it's not to create doubt. It's actually to expel doubt by doing this self-examination that allows us to know that Romans 7 is very real to us. In Jesus' um, um, encounter with the disciples, Matthew chapter 6, 
Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That is a very safe question. It's it's easy for me to look around and pass judgment on other people. It's easy for me to look around and do self-examine or examine other people. And so Jesus uh, would listen to them and they would say back to him, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus looks at them and he gets very personal and very individual. Just like we have to with the Christian life. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? It's like he points his finger in a loving way and said, well, you, you say that all these people say that I'm this, I'm, I'm him, I'm this person. But who do you say that I am? And if we're going to know anything about this conflict and anything about the Christian life, uh, we must be uh, assured that we are in the Christian life. You know, there's a book written by a Puritan of the 17th century. His name is Matthew Mead. It's all, it, it, the title of the book is The Almost Christian uh, uh, Persuaded, The Almost Christian Discovered. And he, ta- he talks about how you can be so close and yet not in that you can, you can actually maybe even think you're a Christian because you made a profession. And so uh, what I want to do is to get us to understand that when Paul writes in, in Romans 7, he is writing a personal experience. He is writing of the personal experience because he knows that he is a Christian. He knows that uh, God the Father is his father. He's able to understand what Jesus said to Mary after the resurrection. When Jesus looks at Mary and says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Jesus would say, my sheep know me. They know my voice and they will follow me. If you look at Romans 7, how many times the personal pronouns are used in that chapter. This isn't just that Paul is so absorbed with himself. Paul is keenly aware that this is him in relation to Romans 6 and Romans 8, that he is a person alive in Christ. And I I want all of you to be assured that you are in Christ. And the only way to validate profession of Christ is in your practice of being like Christ. And you cannot rest any salvation on a decision. You can't rest salvation on a profession. You have to evaluate yourself in the present tense. Is there evidence in my life that new birth has occurred and is it progressing? Such as a life of conforming to the fruit of the Spirit. A life of submission to the Lordship of Christ. A life of progressive uh, intentional obedience to the commands of God. You know, it's, it's, it's a scary thought, and I think there's a lot of the contemporary Christianity that has this, and this isn't a judgment on churches. This is just an assessment on what we see out there, is that there is a lot of people that profess Christ, but yet you don't see the evidence of a possession of Christ. And the evidence would be by lifestyle and by his priorities and his desires taking over our desires and our will. Paul would use the personal pronoun I 24 times in Romans 7. He would also use uh, me six times, my six times, and myself one time. He owned, he owned the Christian life. He owned that he was indeed a Christian in battle. This, This Christian life that I just mentioned is not only personal and individual, but the warfare that we are talking about is personal and individual. 
There is a law of sin that is universal that fights us, but every one of us have specific areas of weakness and specific areas of temptation that is exploited by the devil, by the world, and by our flesh under the umbrella of the law of sin. There are certain things that you struggle with that I don't. And there are certain things that I struggle with that you don't. And yet there are also the common areas that we do struggle together with. And so you got to evaluate yourself. Do you know anything about this conflict that Paul's talking about? Do you have this daily tension in you that the things you want to do, you don't do, and the things that you want to do, that, that, that you don't do, you do, and all that mess that we read in 7, is that you? And do you get and groan during the day? Do you groan, I'm just so tired of my sinfulness. I'm so tired of disobeying. I'm so tired of falling short. And this isn't willful. This is something inside of you that is doing battle with you that prevents you from these things. If you know anything of that, that is a very good sign that your Christianity is personal. If you know nothing of this conflict... That is not a good sign because this is the evident experience of every Christian. There should be the groaning of Romans 8 in us. A groaning for the day that we will be free from this invader that still remains within our soul. Within our hearts. And so the Christian life, this conflict is is very personal. But now take a look at verse 15. Through 16. And notice what Paul says. I do not understand my own actions. I do not understand my own actions. The greatest Christian who ever lived is saying this. He doesn't say anything about self-confidence. He says nothing about his giftedness. He says nothing about how he's being used. He says nothing about uh, how he is, uh, was taken to the third heaven and had this great vision. Uh, with Jesus. He said, what he says, he says, I don't even understand myself. Friends, that is a sign of awareness. It is a sign of awareness. Of awareness that there is something happening in every waking moment of the Christian life that doesn't make sense to us. And this isn't something just, it happens one day and then it doesn't happen the next. No. This is the constant wearing out of the Christian. It's the constant battle of the mind, the battle of the heart. And that's what all of spiritual warfare is, is to get your heart is to get your mind. And Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. Paul is acknowledging in verses 15 and 16 that there are two principles warring within him. And he doesn't understand it. He was a riddle to himself. I Always be cautious of these zealous, confident Christians... That it usually happens into, into the young, but be very cautious, even in your own life, that you think you have this Christian life uh, uh, figured out. Because it's a mystery. It is a mystery to us. Spurgeon would say this, quote, This is the believer's riddle. To say that this is not a believer's experience, Romans 7, is to prove that that man who says it does not know much about how believers feel. We hate sin, yet alas, alas, we fall into it. We would like to live perfect lives if we could, and that we are renewed, but yet justification for our sin feels like it's never occurred. It is evil and abominable with sin, yet we find within us it constantly competing and trying to steal our hearts. I think oftentimes we're like Lot's wife. 
I know I am at times. You remember he, she was uh, told not to look back at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but she just couldn't help it. Her curiosity was such that she just, she just had to know. She just had to know. And we know what happened to her. Um, she turns around, and next thing you know, she's a pillar of salt. I think oftentimes we try to untangle mysteries of the Christian life that we are not supposed to even touch. There are things that we are not to know. God has ordained it in his counsel and in his word that there are certain things we will not know. And we have to be okay with that. Because if not, what will happen is that we will get frustrated because we can't untie a knot that he said has not given us permission or the ability to untie. And then we'll start questioning the, the truth of this book. And when you start questioning the truth of this book, God never tells you to understand everything about him. He tells you to trust everything you know about him. There's the difference. There's the difference. And so in this, in, in this, if you start questioning or you try to figure out, well, what is Paul saying? He doesn't understand his own way. I don't understand what is all that. If you try to, try, try to peel all that apart, you're going to find yourself in a very dangerous place because you will start questioning the authenticity of the Bible. And when you start questioning even one, one sliver of it, you are on your way. You're on your way to apostasy. You will, you will deny this book. Now, there are times that God will reveal to us certain things. You remember when he washed feet, the feet of the disciples, and Jesus uh, was talking to Peter, and Peter was, was one that wanted to know everything? Then Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now but afterwards you will. See, Peter wanted to have it all out, laid out for him. And how often do we want everything laid out perfectly for us? And we start reading Romans 7 and say, wait a minute, I don't get this. I don't get this. I need to get this. No, what you and I need to do with Romans 7 is accept that this is us. That this is what God has ordained, that this life would be one of conflict. It would be one of conflict. It would be one of constant conflict. And if we don't understand that the Christian life is one of constant conflict, then that's a sign of either one, we're not a Christian, or number two, we're living in defeat and don't even know it. We get so wrapped up in all the things of the world, even good things of the world, and we forget that this is only a passing phase of our life. We're headed to eternity, and that this is a time of warfare, a time of conflict. The time for rest is for another day, is for another place. But let's, let's break this down a little bit more. Let's, let's talk about the enemy. Let's talk about what is this, actually a person, because he would personify sin as a person. What is this, this invader that's inside of the believer? What, what, is, what is it? Well, look at verse uh, 17 and 20. The enemy defined, that Paul says, that constantly wars in the heart of the, of the Christian. He calls it sin that dwells within. Sin that dwells within. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now the sin that he's talking about here, notice what he says, it isn't sins plural. He's not talking about our external activities, our conduct. Never look at sin first by what you do. You must always look at sin by what you are. 
And what we are by nature is sin. And just because we're justified, it has not eradicated, you know, the remaining sin. That's one of the mysteries. Why, why didn't God, and there are denominations, there are uh, Christian uh, denominations that believe there's a second work of grace that you can be, have the old nature eradicated out. And I actually was talking to a pastor that believes that. And I remember telling him, I was a new Christian, and I was telling him and talking to him about that. And I said, oh, how I wish that was true. I wish that was true. And we got into conversation about it. And he tried to convince me that it's true. And I just asked him one question. I said, what do you do about sins of thought? They don't have an answer for that. Because sins of thought are sins of action. Sins of eyes are sins of, of action. Jesus said, if you look at a woman's lust, you've committed adultery. So this, this idea of the second uh, work of grace, eradication of the old nature, I wish it was true, but it's not. And this is one of those mysteries you have to leave it alone. God has ordained that we go to war every day. Every day we go to war. And the war, which we will see uh, more some next week when we look at the, uh, the law of God in our mind and the law of God in our flesh, we will see that the, the war that is mentioned in, in chapter 7 and the whole of the Christian war, it is fought in the battleground of your mind. That's where it is. Because as you think, so you will live. As your mind is programmed, so you will live. And if, you're, if your source of data is shaping your thinking, and it's of the world, which uses the law of sin, then you're going to be defeated if you're a Christian. Conversely, if you have the law of God, which is the, and the Word of God is a constant renewing and the source of data renewing your mind, then that's how you take the law of sin, and you're able to live above it. You're able to defeat it on a consistent basis. The problem is that we're just so bombarded by the law of sin through the world, the devil, and our flesh that if we're not armed, if we're not aware of this, then this is never going to lead to any type, of, any type of, of victory. And Paul would say this is intense. He says, it's sin that dwells within me. And he's not talking about the actions. He's talking about what remains, what produces the actions. But when we see the word here that it's sin that dwells within me, this points to something that is very near and dear. I don't say dear in a, in a positive way, because it's the same type of wording that we read in John 15, where Jesus says, abide in me or dwell in me. And it points to a, a, a closeness, an inseparable closeness. And, and Paul is saying that this, this sin, this lawlessness, this missing of the target... This wandering from the path, though it has been conquered in my justification uh, by, <clears throat> by its uh, penalty, it still has somewhat of an influence or a power within me. Not a domineering power, but a power nevertheless that I have to do battle against. But it's different. There's a difference between indwelling sin in the believer and indwelling sin in the unbeliever. And remember that. Don't let the devil or your conscience rake you over a coal to think that just because uh, Romans 7 is happening to you and you don't understand it and the law of sin at times is winning over you, don't think you're not a Christian. Romans 7 can be a source of great doubt and of great fear in a timid Christian. A timid uh, Christian who may be overly sensitive. And he says, well, I don't do the things that I want to do. I can't be a Christian. Then they'll run to 1 John and they say that he, he who practices sin is not of God. You've got to be careful on how you compare those verses. This is a Christian. 
This should bring assurance, not doubt. Now, if you are willfully heading, just headstrong to the law of sin, and you are committing this, and you are enjoying that, and you are, are saying it, do not for a second think you're a Christian. Is that you can't have this love of sin if the Savior who died for sin has pulled you from that. But I'm, I don't want you to think, well, I'm, that I'm not a Christian because I fall. No. There's a difference between falling into temptation and feeding temptation. There is a tremendous difference between f- fulfilling fleshly desires and starving fleshly desires. For the unbeliever, For the unbeliever, this indwelling sin that Paul was referring to, total domination. Total domination. This person is uh, enslaved to sin, enslaved to the flesh, enslaved to the devil, enslaved to, um, to the world. Eternal death is their destiny. They're in bondage. They are under God's wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's what the law of sin entices. And we're by nature children of wrath. You can't change your nature. And so Paul would tell us the difference in this enemy that is within us, For the unbeliever, it's in totality, complete dominance, under the power and has no ability or desire to be afraid, to be freed. Not so for us as believers. We still have this indwelling sin. But unlike the unbeliever, the indwelling sin within us, if we're converted and the Spirit of God is doing His work in us, what happens? This indwelling sin, it is viewed as an unwelcome guest. An invader even that, has come, that stays within us that you want with, with great passion. You want this thing, this person out. You don't want it anymore. You hate the conflict. You despise the conflict. You even may despise yourself because you find yourself defeated more often than you have victory. And you end up just beating yourself to death because of Romans 7. And what that means is you forgot Romans 6 and Romans 8. You, got, you, have to, you have to connect all those. Romans 6 is Romans 8, and Romans 8 are the life preserver that keeps you from drowning in Romans 7. And the more that you connect all those, you will understand that Romans 7 is a source of assurance because it's affirming that God is at work in you, humbling you in the conflict, and yet lifting you up by your position in Christ and your hope of glory in Romans 8. That's that's the the beauty of this section. And what it does, it prevents complacency. One of the greatest dangers you'll have in the Christian life is complacency. It's complacency. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want to give you a Navy illustration. Surprise, right? Uh, I want to give you a Navy illustration about this, the power of indwelling sin in the unbeliever as well as in the believer. Let's imagine that uh, they were on a ship, we're on a warship, and we're at sea, and we would always uh, refuel every three days. Always refuel. You had to keep 80% um, capacity. So we would refuel every three days. And, and what would happen is an oiler would be out in the middle of nowhere, and we would come alongside this oiler. 
we would come, and there would be a promulgated, uh, it's called a Romeo Corpin in speed, a replenishment course in speed. And it would be long enough so you'd be on because when you come alongside the oiler, you don't move. You come alongside, and we throw our lines over, and we connect, and the gas station begins. Four or five hours we are alongside this, uh, this oiler. We are restricted in our maneuverability. We can't fulfill our mission. We are on one course. We can only do one thing. That is replenish. We're connected to this ship. Now, I told you a believer. Well, the believer, just imagine the believer is this ship that's getting the fuel. Well, the believer, like a real ship, the believer has the power to break loose. It's a break loose from the replenishment ship. And we would always uh, uh, do emergency breakaway drills just to test the con, test the bridge team, test the, uh, test the deck the, the, the deck department. And so we would call out, this is a drill emergency breakaway. And then everybody's scrambling. We're getting the lines across from the oiler. And within seconds, we're ready. And we're just, uh, we're, we're just we're, we're getting out of there. We go from maybe 16 knots to 30 knots in no time. And you see the rooster tail. And we're pulling away from the oiler. And so the believer, the believer at dwelling sin, we, we're attached to that because of the fallenness of Romans 7. However, we have the ability to break away. We can break away anytime. And that anytime is dependent upon us living in Romans 6 and Romans 8 by the Spirit. Now the same, the same poor Navy illustration. The ship is an unbeliever. It's alongside the replenishment ship. It's connected to that. The unbeliever, connected to indwelling sin, can't break away. Constantly on that course. And it's a course of destruction. You can never break away. And so when you look at what Paul is talking about, about this, the enemy within, this law of sin, it does not have to keep you in chains. It does not. It's the reality of the Christian life. And in fact, you will learn to thank God for the conflict. You say, wait a minute. Because it's in those complacent times that you will have the most, the most trouble. It's when things are not challenging, so to speak. That life seems to be okay. You're going through life, not much challenge. It's then that you're going to find out that how powerful this law of sin really is. Because then it will inflame itself. David Brainerd said this one time. I have found that when I have thought the battle was over, and the conquest gained, I so let down my watch, the enemy has risen up and done me the greatest injury. I was a uh, professional watch stander, as you know, in the Navy. That's what I did. I stood watch at sea. And when I was supervising my watch standers, do you know the time when it was the most challenging? It's when nothing was going on. It was absolute quiet. Guys would be sitting on radar screens. They don't see anything. They've been up for 18, 19 hours for a week, and, week long. They're tired. You know, they're, they're sleepy. And I can't tell you how many times I'd, walk, I'd have to walk through that row of watchstanders. And they'd be sitting there. And it'd be like, like a Halloween party. Bobbing for apples. <laughs> they were sleepy. They were tired. And you know what? That is the worst time at sea. 
whether it be a bridge team, a navigation, or whether it be where I was, the combat information center, and, and, and radar watchstanders, is that when you think that there's nothing going on and it's all calm, that's when you're most liable. And if you forget Romans 7 is your life, then you are ripe for the devil, you're ripe for the world, and you're ripe for your flesh to rule. And so, but this, this, this enemy, this enemy that Paul says, how does it operate? How, what is the, the governing principles of this law of sin? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. Paul would say um, that there is two laws. There's the law of God and there's the law of sin. And the law of God, as you know, which he delighted in, which is evidence of new birth, is defined as any representative declaration of God's requirements to include, to include moral for his creatures, whether in scripture or whether in conscience. We've already looked at the law great length leading up to this chapter. Whereas the law of sin is defined as a wicked power and its principle that brings human beings into subjection to its evil and rebellion against the law of God. You know this, but I want you to be constantly reminded that these two are competing laws, but they operate in the same principle of law. God's law will be maintained. Its commands and its consequences are constant. It's the same thing with the law of sin. It will remain constant in its consequences. The law of God, the law of God in its constancies is it brings blessings. Blessings, joy, fulfillment, safe boundaries. Whereas the law of sin... The law of sin always brings pain, misery, bondage, turmoil, hopelessness. If the devil would have came to Eve and said, Eve, i got to tell you the truth here. If you eat this, this is what's going to happen. You're going to break fellowship with God. Death is going to come upon you and all of humanity. Welcome misery Pain, disappointment, failed expectations, on and on and on. Eve would have looked at him and said, no way. What if David would have been where he should have been, out with his men on the war front instead of on the couch? And what if he, what if he, uh, what if he uh, walked to the window and he looks out and he sees beautiful Bathsheba? What if he would have immediately stopped and turned his head and said, wait a minute. If I do this, I'm going to break every one of God's moral laws. And I am going to suffer consequences for the rest of my life. I am going to have nothing but misery. Yes, I'll be a, I'm a man after God's own heart. But I'm going to have a son who wants my kingdom. I'm going to have nothing but, but pain and agony for the rest of his life. Do you think David would have said, hey, go get her? No, he wouldn't have. That, my friend, is the principle of the law of sin is it will never tell you up front what the consequences are. It will tell you up front what the temporary pleasure is. It will tell you up front, hey, it's just a little thing, no big deal. Remember, you're justified. It will whisper to you, just enjoy it. It's who you are. It's part of the human experience. The law of sin, the law of sin is so deceptive in the life of the believer. It doesn't have to be deceptive in the, in, the, in, the, in the life of the unbeliever. 
The unbeliever is already in captivity. There's no conflict. None. There's no war. This Romans 7 conflict, it's us. And the law of sin is so deceptive. Examples they just gave you. But here's another one. The law of sin in the believer will justify disobedience. You know, I just, I don't have the time for this. No, I really don't want to get involved. I can't. The law of sin will make you think that what you're, what you're doing is actually acceptable for God, and it isn't. That's why there's the law of God, and there's the law of sin. And that's why you always have to compete in Romans 7 with Romans 6 and Romans 8. And you have to let the Word of God be the final say, because it's only the sword of the Spirit that will defeat the law of sin. And that, that law of sin falls, falls and bows to verses 25. Thanks be to God. I serve God with, the, with my mind, the mind, the word renewed, so that I will defeat the, the law of sin which is in my flesh. Christian, never ever avoid knowing what you're supposed to do according to God's word and justifying it. Because if you do that, you know what happens? Slowly but surely, you get a hardened heart against truth. And you'll find yourself more and more losing the all factor of the gospel. And then there'll be, there'll be a day that you will just be just a Christian in name only. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation, but you sure won't have any joy in your salvation. Because you've yielded to the law of sin. And the law of sin is, and here's some things. I want to just tell you three things. We'll wind this down. Three things on the law of sin. Number one, the law of sin never produces good. Never. It never produces good. Paul would contrast the law of sin with the law of God in Romans seven twelve. He would say, the law is holy, God's law. Commandment is holy and righteous and good. The word good there is not what we may think is good. Good defined as God's law is of the highest quality of goodness. It is unmatched in its goodness. Whereas the law of sin is contrasted in verse 13. And we spent one, one whole sermon on that. That, sin, that, that the commandment, the law of God, would show that sin, the law of sin, is sinful beyond measure. What does that mean? We don't know the depths of it. And if you're a Christian today and you are living in Romans 7, but you're yielding to the law of sin, you have no idea where that's going to take you. You have no idea the consequences in the Christian life of the consequences if we toy with the law of sin at the expense of compromising the law of God. And Paul would say these, these wonderful things. He says, this thing is in me and it's forcing me and it's, it's, it's causing me all kinds of havoc, but I am going to fight against it and I'm going to do so in the strength of the gospel. But it's so easy as Christians, we just roll over. Every day we find ourselves giving in temptation. Whether it's temptation to have critical thoughts. Whether it's temptation to have impure thoughts. Whether it's temptation to uh, be worldly. Whether it's temptation to lack self-discipline, self-control, uh, and self-denial. Whether it's the discipline of, um, of, of uh, well, let's think about it. Another law of sin. It could be uh, neglect of the things of God to be occupied with the things of the world. It just goes on and on and on. There's so much that the law of sin will exploit. But Paul would say, that's not going to be me. I'm in this conflict. I don't understand it, but I'm going to fight. And that's what Romans 7 does. He's telling us, I don't like it. 
I don't understand it, but I'm not going to let it rule me. Why? Because of Romans 6 and Romans 8. So number one, the law of sin never produces good. Never. Don't think it does. It, it will advertise itself as good. It will advertise pleasure. But if you obey it, if you obey it, then your pleasure will be short-lived. Your remorse and your, your remorse and your regret will be long-lived. And your repentance depends on the magnitude of what you've done. Your repentance may be very painful. And God will grant you repentance and God will bring you back. Uh, but He will also teach you how wicked it is to let the, sin, the law of sin in His child to be operative. He loves you too much. He gave too much for us to want to be justified but yet not sanctified. Number two, the law of sin is never eradicated. And I mentioned that, so I won't put a lot of time on this. The law of sin is never eradicated in this life. Look at verse 21 and 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. See the, const, see the, the, the constant present tense struggle he's talking about? Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am. That's what he says in verse 24. Who shall deliver me? Well, if there wasn't a gospel, the answer is no one. No one. And so Paul would say, there is this constant tug of war within me of the desire to obey and the pull of the law of sin that's operating on the indwelling sin within me and that I will never be free from this. Galatians 5, 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Friends, let me say this. You don't want this conflict gone. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, I don't want to fight this anymore. You don't want that. I'm talking about the now. You don't want it gone. Do you know what this war, if we really understand it, will do for us? It will intensify our prayer life. Not just that God would give us strength or something. No, that we would get God. That we'd be close to the captain of our salvation. So this conflict will drive you to a deeper prayer life. Second thing, it will cause you to consume your mind with this word because this is the only way that you're going to get over this. And the third thing, it's going to intensify your desire to be with other Christians who are fighting this fight. Because we need each other. We need each other. And if you're a Christian today and you don't have those three, an intensified prayer life to get close to the Lord Jesus, the captain of salvation, if you don't have a desire and the discipline to saturate your mind with the scripture, and if you're okay with just minimal fellowship with other Christians, then you're in a conflict that is actually ruling over you. You are in defeat and you, may, and you don't even know it. And if, if, you, if you feel somewhat like and I know none of you here do, but if someone does, uh, if you feel like what I just said causes you to be defensive, then what I just said is true of you. And it's true of me. There's been times that, that I have given in to the law of sin. There's times that I've just been weary of the fight. And I forget Romans 6. And I forget Romans 8. And I forget that God has ordained that this conflict is designed for my good to get close to Him to be renewed in my mind by His Word, and to deepen my fellowship with other Christians who encourage me in the fight.
And that's, that's the purpose of the conflict. There's more, but that's enough. But understand, it will never be eradicated in this life. Now, you may have times that there is a calm. But just remember, there is deep water underneath that. And when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Luke says this very insightful word after the devil has, was defeated. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Yeah, you may today win, con- win the conflict, and I pray you're winning it today. But that's not saying, okay, I'm going to go off on the sideline and just take a little vacation. No. Your victory today is supposed to continue to victory tomorrow, and victory to next week, and next month, and next year, until God calls you home. Until God calls you home. And that's why we need each other. Because the fight is hard, and the fight is wearisome. But we must remember that it's never eradicated. And the final thing, Romans 6, 17 and 18. And also verses 24 and 25. Paul would identify in these verses that the law of sin works primarily in the weakness of our flesh. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So this law of sin is working through the flesh. Verse 24 or 25, particularly 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We're going to try to break that down some next week. But what Paul is not saying here, and I want you to get this, Paul is not dismissing personal responsibility for sin. He's not. He said, yeah, he says, it's, it's, it's no longer I who do it. So it would be easy to say, well, okay, so Paul's separate from this. Paul said, no, I'm not. I don't want to do this, but here's a mystery, another mystery. There's something else in me, and it is part of me. It's my flesh, and my flesh, nothing good dwells. So I can't give myself a pass and say, well, I'm not doing it. sin. It's just sin within me. It's doing it. No, it is part of who Paul is. And as much as he hates it, he understands that this is what is the fight to the end of, end of his life. John Murray, the Scottish uh, uh, theologian, said, quote, The flesh is his flesh, and it is in him. Sin is also associated with his person, for it is in his flesh that sin inheres, end quote. Someday this, this invader will be gone. But, in the, in, but, but in, in the interim, let's don't try to figure out why God has left us to do this conflict. Let's don't try to figure out why do I still have to fight this thing that Christ has forgiven me. Let's don't try to figure out, well, if I'm justified, then why all this? Don't try to figure that out. Just... First off, thank God that you're justified. Thank God for Romans 6. And then thank God for Romans 8. And then, as hard as it may be, thank God for Romans 7. And when you thank you for Romans 7, do it this way. I thank you that you counted me worthy to fight the fight under the banner of him who conquered this for me. And the more that you fight in those, in, under the banner of Christ and his gospel the more that you will give a world that is not in conflict but under, the, uh, under the, the control of Satan, the more that you give them the hope that the gospel provides. And the more that you're in, con- in this conflict, it will keep your sword sharp. 
so that not only will you fight your own fight, but you'll help each other fight their fight, and you'll take the gospel into the world to those who need to hear that there is a victor, because up from the grave he arose. Next week we'll look at the gospel in verses 24 and 25, and I pray that the Lord will help you understand the conflict is not a bad thing, and that the law of sin is real. It will deceive you as a believer. It will make you do things that you don't like to do. But don't give in to it and don't justify it. God is able. And He's set this conflict for our good. Someday we'll be free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the war. As hard as it is to say that at times, we thank You that we're not left to uh, soldier ourselves. That because of the Lord Jesus, the captain of our salvation, because we have each other, we can fight the good fight and we can finish and we can look to that great day when there will be no war that there will be forever peace but until then make us good soldiers to fight against the law of sin by obeying the law of God and walking in the power of Romans 6 and Romans 8 our position in Christ and the spirit filled life because of Christ and we thank you in Jesus name Amen